Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a really interesting show and it's going to deal with a subject that we all face through life. And it's a very difficult subject for most of us to face. We've got Emily Throat, and she's the author of Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief, a comprehensive guide to reclaiming and cultivating joy and carrying on in the face of loss. And Emily's been through a, a lot herself. She went through the death of two husbands and many of her family members and her friends. And she's so she's got a lot of experience and she's learned how to face life with love, optimism, and joy. And her mission is to create and support those dealing with grief and loss and help help them focus on happiness. She's got a master's degree in English uh, with a concentration in writing. So she's taught writing at the university level. So it's natural that she would turn to writing to help her deal with her grief. Thank you so much, Emily, for, for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I'm grateful to be here. Well, you know, you've got your own journey, and, and I think that's a lot of times on where things start. And, and is that where your book started? Is, is you processing what you've been through? Um, partially, yes. When my second husband to die died, I found myself writing a lot, not writing to share with anybody, but writing for me to deal with my thoughts and feelings and everything that was going on. And I was getting a lot out of that writing, and I thought, gee, I could I could teach other people who are dealing with grief to get something out of that writing, too. So I started meeting with uh, uh, lots of people, actually, would come to my house, and we would have grief writing groups, and, and we'd write and talk, and it was just really good. And then I'd been doing that for a while when a friend of my husband's just dropped dead, and he was much younger than my husband, and he he and his wife were good family friends of ours. And I was so concerned about her because she would have had no idea that this is coming, no way to prepare, probably no thoughts of what she would do if something like this happened. So I wrote her a, a letter saying, these are the things you do need to think about now, and these are the things you don't need to think about now. And she said that it helped her so much. I thought, I need to do more. So I decided to write her a card every day for the, not every day, every week for the first year after he died. And I thought, gee, that's 52 different things I need to write. So <laughs> I, I decided I'd better sit down and try and figure out what I was going to say first. And I, I did that, and I got a, a good list there and started sending her the cards. And I thought, gee, I've got an outline for a book here. So I got a, an agent and a publisher and wrote the book, and it came out in January. And the main focus of the book is not just telling my story, but talking about lots of things that people deal with during uh, while they're grieving and in life in general. And then at the end of each chapter, there's a practice so they can actively do something to help themselves with whatever the subject is. Well, you know, it's it, it's almost like it comes natural to you because you've had so much experience with it. I know my dad died when I was 12, 
And that touched my life mm-hmm. from from that day on. And I lost a twin brother at 21. And so for mm. me, grief has always been something that I never wanted to unpack. And then when I decided to become a counselor, one of the first classes that you have to take is a class where you actually have to do 10 hours of counseling. And so, you know, everybody's like, ah, don't worry about it. Just go in there and shoot the breeze. I'm like, no. I mean, if I, 10 hours is a lot of time. And if I'm going to spend 10 hours on something, I'm going to work on something. And that is when I started to touch on the impact that grief had on me. And it's not that I don't know why I didn't before. Well, I do know why I didn't before. It hurt. You know, it just really hurt. So when you see people in that place, I can't imagine what it would have been like, you know, to have somebody reach out to me and and connect with me in a way that I could connect. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so important. So many of us uh, find ourselves in isolation after a loved one dies. And often that's not by choice. I, I know with me, I had, uh, when, when Jacques died, we had tons of friends. We'd been together for 22 years and like we knew everybody in town. And they were supportive until after the service. And then it was like I was invisible. <laughs> I said, yoo-hoo, you know, I'm, I'm here. And people just, um, I think that talking to me was causing them to deal with the fact that Jacques was gone. And so it left me involuntarily by myself for quite a while. And I, I had to learn to deal with that. And one of the things I did learn is that if I could help others, to not have to have that situation come up, even if I'm a new friend or somebody they didn't know before. I would really like to help somebody because it's pretty miserable to be stuck with, with your grief and no way to deal with it, nobody to talk to or nothing that you can think of to do about it. So what's the first step? The first step, I, I feel, is to take really good care of yourself before you do anything else. If, if you're not taking care of you, then you don't have anything to work with. The only way you can get better is if you, you or feel better is if you choose to. So I say do whatever you need to do. Uh, eat well, exercise, talk to people, do whatever you can to uh, feel like you're a part of society instead of isolating yourself. That's very, very important. And when you do that, of course, I suggest writing because writing helped me so much. And I, I found it, I found it has helped uh, just about, I, well, everybody that I've talked to about it that's actually done it has been really grateful for the idea of doing it and knowing things that they can do with writing. A lot of times people will say, well, I never was able to write in my life. Why could I do that now? And I said, you don't have an audience now besides you. So it doesn't matter whether your T's are crossed or I's are dotted or sentences are complete. It, that just doesn't matter because you're writing from your heart. And it's only for you. So, you know, writing from the heart is something that, for me, I have to be in the right headspace. I've got to, you know, I've got to be comfortable yeah. in my environment. I've got to be just, you know, my head's right. I just want to kind of let it flow. And it's not something that I can just stop and do any second. 
do you find people need a mm-hmm. special place to write or, or what what can they do to make it easier? It's it's different for everybody. I what I do is every morning, actually before I get out of bed, I have a, a journal that I write in, and there's certain things that I write in it every day. And by doing that, it gets me uh, like opened up. It reminds me that I'm okay. It reminds me that I'm grateful. It reminds me that I'm I am comforted and supported by the powers that be, whether whether you call it God or energy or whatever it is, that I'm I feel that. And when I when I start that way, then I can open up and write about anything. And I'm I'm sitting there by myself. It's not like uh I have to interact with anybody at that point. And that, that way anything can just flow. And that's important. If sometimes when I used to teach in, in my writing classes when I taught them on, on ground. I teach them all online now. But I used to say that, you know, you, you need to go get whatever kind of thing you need to write on. When, when I wrote my first book, so they were all on um, yellow lined notepads that I wrote with a certain kind of a pen. And I did best if I sat in a certain chair. And when I, when I had those things uh, working for me, then, then I could write. But if I... I had a challenge trying to write someplace else. So it's important to figure out where and when is best for you to write. Maybe for you, before you go to bed, clearing out whatever is, is going on with, with your thoughts at that point can make it easier for you to sleep. Or maybe first thing in the morning helps you write with getting your day started out. Or maybe you like to write on the computer because it's it's easy to correct and easy to see and easy to read. Or maybe you have a certain kind of notebook or journal that you want to write in. Find out what things are, are discovered by trying different things, what it is that really works for you, and then do that. So, you know, I think part of that is getting comfortable with yourself with what happened. Um and for yes. some of us, you know, if, if it was totally unexpected, it, I think that makes it a lot harder. Um, I, but even with my dad, he had lost a, a lung in World, World War II. And he was on and off oxygen in and out of the VA hospital. And so it was always, you know, the threat of, of him dying was always there. But when it happened, it didn't make it any easier for me to accept that's right. Yeah, that that was similar to my dad. My dad had had health challenges for a while. None of them were things that I thought would end his life, but he was always dealing with something. And when he just suddenly died, he was having trouble breathing, and they took him to the hospital, and they told mom that he was going to be okay. They were going to have him in ICU for the night, and, and she could come and visit him the next day. And by the time she got home, she got the phone call that he was gone. And with a situation like that, it was such a, a shock to everyone that dealing with it to start off with it just seemed unreal. It, it didn't it it seemed like he was still there someplace he was still going to pick up the phone or walk through the door and writing about things like that with with sudden death or i've had friends that have died in accidents um actually one aunt and one uncle died in two separate car accidents 
when things like that happen, your your mind can just do crazy things. <laughs> you know, the, the idea will bounce around in your head until you, you find it hard to think straight about anything, let alone dealing with your grief. And if you can take the, the time to just decide that you're going to sit down and write whatever comes into your mind about it, then you'd be surprised what you come up with. But the more you write about it, the more you get it on paper, it like makes it real. It makes it in a, in a way that you can deal with it differently. And you don't have to think about it as much because you've, you've already wrote it down. And so you, you don't have to try and hold on to those moments or hold on to those memories in your head because you've, you've got them safely recorded so that um, they, they don't keep uh, poking at you. Well, I mean, there's a grieving sense. cycle that we all go through and, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a cycle with, with change first, you know, we, we go into denial, then it's anger, then it's depression. I mean, you just go back and forth what are, what is this what are the stages of grief that you help take people through okay we have have a, a different feeling about that here those those stages of grief actually were written by elizabeth kubler ross and what she wrote in her book on death and dying were the five stages of dying not of grief and they just kind of got adopted because it was like a a handy thing to hold on to because people wanted a guide. They wanted a direction to what you're supposed to do when you're grieving. And I've had people that have talked to me that are so concerned because they didn't experience one of the stages or they weren't doing them in the right order or things like that. And I said, no, don't, don't worry about that at all. You may experience those five things. You may experience two of them, or you may experience five additional things to the ones that are on the list. So I think the best thing is to not be concerned about what they're going to be, but rather deal with what comes up when it comes up. Well, that's good. That's good advice. You know, don't, because I think we all get expectations in our head. And then when our expectations Mm -hmm. aren't met, that we feel, we feel like we've been, you know, shorted or, or anxious or we're depressed about it. Um, so what are some of the tools that you use? I mean, do you believe in meditation? Absolutely. I, I meditate, meditate every day for at least some time, sometimes a lot longer than others, and in different ways. Sometimes that might be a meditative walk. When I, I live in Maui in Hawaii, and it's beautiful here, and just going for a walk is is relaxing for me and puts me in a, in a zone because I'm surrounded by all this beauty and it just feels good and I'm not expecting anything of me at the time. But another thing that I do is every single day I write down things that I'm grateful for because before I started doing this practice after um, Jacques had died, I, all I could think about were things that were bad and wrong, you know, I was by myself, I, I didn't want to live in that big house by myself, I, my friends weren't calling, you know, it was, it was, everything was negative, and one of my friends told me I needed to, to um, start actually writing down things I was grateful for, and I said, what do I have to be grateful for? My husband died, you know, and she said, well, try it, and I ignored her, and then I had a couple more people say, you know, you really should try writing down things that, 
that you're grateful for. And I thought, I'm getting it from more than one direction. There must be something to this. It won't hurt me to try. Well, once I started writing things I was grateful for, I was amazed at the shift in how I was feeling because I started realizing that my life wasn't all bad. It wasn't all sorry. It wasn't all, I can't go on because I I don't have my husband anymore. I don't know what to do or how to live. But I found that I was grateful that I had an income, that I ended up uh, being able to have insurance, which I lost when he died because I was I was covered under him, and I was very worried about that. But I was able to work that out. I was able to work out a, a different place for me to live, so I wasn't in the big home that we shared together, and it was an ideal place for me. But that all came from the things that I was realizing as I was recording what I was grateful for. I, I hadn't been eating well, and I was losing a lot of weight, and in writing about uh, my gratitude, I would write that I was grateful for asparagus, <laughs> and I was grateful for peanut butter and mashed potatoes. And as I wrote that, I thought, I can I can just eat those things. And it was my start into getting back into eating regular food instead of just avoiding eating pretty much and then, you know, having a bag of chips or uh, some ice cream. And focusing on the things that in my life I really do love. I love a nice, juicy slice of watermelon. Just is is awesome. And when I'd start thinking about gratitude and I'd think about I'm grateful that I get the opportunity to, to eat something like that, it shifted my eating patterns. And that made me feel better because I was becoming healthier because I was doing better self-care, which I think is the bottom line most important thing for all of the rest of it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, our our understanding of self-care has changed. I can remember, I think, three or four years ago when we first started talking about self-care. Oh, and that was Netflix and a bottle of wine laying on the couch. And and we learned pretty quickly that, Mm -hmm. no, that's not self-care. You know, that is not really tuning into what you need on a daily basis and, and, and taking the time to even do that. I mean, you have to release, if you ask me, what, yeah. Lee, what do you need? I can say, well, I don't want that. I don't want that. But but I need to take my time and stop and think about, well, what do I want? So I think that self-care That's right. is fundamental for, for all of us. And even if you haven't lost someone, you know, you still self-care and, and self-compassion. And that's something that I've seen in the yeah. last you know, four to six weeks with some new clients that they don't, self-compassion is not something that they practice. Now, they want to, you know, it's like, I want to be nice to myself. I want to treat myself like I would treat my best friend. But it's, sometimes it's harder to do than that. And particularly, I think when you've lost somebody, and if it's, if it's your husband or your mother or your father, it's one of the most important people in your life. That's right. That's right. You know, and one one thing that I was thinking about when you were saying that is we hear a lot of stories about ourselves that we agree with. And, uh, you know, we, we say, well, that must be it if somebody's saying that. For instance, with me, when I was growing up, my parents kept saying, you could do so much better in school if you'd just try harder. Well, we discovered in about fifth grade, I think it was, I had a, a vision screening, and I, I couldn't see. 
you know, I saw enough to walk around, and I I thought I never experienced anything different. I thought that, you know, that was the way you see things. But once I got a pair of glasses on, my life changed. And I thought, even though they were my parents and they loved me, and they thought they were doing something that was good for me, they were they were telling me something that wasn't serving me, and I was listening to it and believed that about myself. So you have to look at where where your messages come from, because once once I realized that I could learn, that I could read, I could do all the things, I could do the math, because I hadn't been able to say them well enough to do them in the past. My writing was practically illegible because I didn't know what it looked like. But boy, those glasses changed my life. So it could be that you need to look at your life through different lenses that maybe you've been looking at it and how somebody told you something about you and you believed it. And instead, write down what, what, who you are. I, I just happened to glance up at the wall at, a, at something that, that I made when Ron and I got together. He said, you, you need to write a description of yourself, uh, of, of the you that you know that you really are. And so I did, and it, it was it was brief, and I really liked it. So I wrote it out in kind of calligraphy and framed it, and I've got it by my desk so I can look at it every day. And it says, I'm a strong, intelligent, creative, successful woman. And That's once great. I started thinking of myself that way, it opened doors to me. Well, um, and I think, you know, you, that's where it all starts, is you have to start with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um Although I, I know with uh, grief, there's so many other, you know, there's other family members, there's, there's so many other pieces. And how do you, how do you direct your attention? How do you, you know, because you want to be sure that you acknowledge everybody that's suffering. Yes, but start with self-care. Sometimes there are people that will drain you. Um, I've I've seen instances where people that like the primary loss would in in this case was a woman whose husband died and somebody else that was uh very involved with the situation was just so devastated herself by this death that she she wasn't functioning well and she kept going to the widow you know trying to get her to do things to help her and and when she was just barely hanging on herself. So you have to, to notice when when people around you are toxic or, or people are asking you for what you can't give at that point, whatever it is. And and make that be okay. You know, you you can say yes or you can say, you know, I just can't talk on the phone about that right now. So can we talk another time? You you don't have to be uh, take an end to somebody else's drama because you can't help somebody else if you're not able to help yourself first. And it it can just make things feel worse and worse for you. I mean, and you know, if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anybody else. That's, that's rule number one in life. But I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, I know when grief occurs, it impacts your self love. It impacts your judgment it impacts your ability to be social. So, you know, we're going to take a break in a couple mm-hmm. of minutes. 
But before we do, anything that, you know, speaks to you that that you'd like to say about people's being able to be social? Um, don't force yourself. Do what feels good for you at the moment. And make opportunities for yourself. Like I started taking myself out for dinner or lunch every once in a while with a good book, you know, so that I would be getting out of the house. And, and it was baby steps for me, but it worked. It, it helped me. And I eventually was able to do more. Well, you know, it's so interesting because it, uh, nothing makes a better date than a really good book and something that you can just right. get lost in. <laughs> yeah. And I, I prefer a good book to the phone because now when you see people out by themselves, they're glued to their phone. Um, and and it, there's yeah. a lot on the phone. I'm I'm probably as guilty as many people about how I use my phone. But I think taking something like a good book that kind of gives you, a, when I jump into a good book, I'm almost in another place. I'm I'm not yeah. in my normal realm. So. The, you know, being social, I think, is one of the hardest things because you were married, your husband died, and then you remarried. And that's a whole process. Mm -hmm. How do you convince yourself, you know, that that it's okay? Um, Or are you being selfish? Um, Or should you, are you not, you know, giving enough honor to your late husband. I mean, these are things that I've that I've heard people say, and really, it, it's hard to answer because I think that the for me, my advice mm-hmm. is you have to be comfortable. You don't don't ever let anybody push yeah. you into doing it. Um, but when you feel that you're you're ready, and I think when you're in a really good marriage where you have a, a strong companion and a best friend, you miss that. You know, you just, you miss that Mm -hmm. and, and you get to the point where you decide maybe I should, or maybe I could, um, but then, okay, how are you going to do that? Um, cause it's a different world that we live in that, I mean, and and I don't know how to swipe right. I don't know about you, but we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'd really like for you to talk about how do you go about meeting that next right person? We'll be back after these messages. It's words you never heard. Don't you just hate it when someone starts a sentence by saying, don't take this the wrong way, but... According to Elizabeth Bernstein of the Wall Street Journal, we all do this on occasion. Some people refer to these phrases as tee-ups. That seems fitting. What do you do with a golf ball? You tee it up and then give it a giant wallop. Tee-ups like, to tell you the truth, supposedly soften the blow. But if you are taking the trouble to announce your honesty now, maybe you've been telling too many taradiddles, flummery, and fiblets. Being on the wrong side of a tee-up can be confusing for the listener. What are other words for confusion and frustration? Wouldn't dream and jargoggle. Maybe it would be best to try to remain pricknickety. That means totally above board and precise. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. It's words you never heard. April is the month of the military child, who are also referred to as brats. 
Military families on average relocate 10 times more often than civilian families. Over 80% of children raised in military families now speak at least one language other than English. Brats also learn the language of the military, such as, you'll have to get up at zero dark 30 to get ready for school. Zero dark 30 means super early in the morning. Or, if they bring home a good grade, they might get a bravo Zulu or well done. One thing that stays with military families, no matter where they move, is the Armed Forces Radio Network. So I would like to extend a special thanks to all those military brats living around the world, making sacrifices every day in the service of our country. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. So we're back. And before break, we, you know, we were talking about the different places that you go with grief. And, and at a certain point in time, you may begin to want to move beyond it and think about bringing, being involved with somebody else in, else in your life. And, and that can be a really heavy decision to make. And you have the heartstrings pulling at you and you have, you know, you have the negative thoughts going on. You shouldn't do that. It's wrong to think that. So, Emily, guide us through this. Tell us what the right approach is. Well, I I went through a a time when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life after Jacques died that I thought, you know what? We had a 22-year marriage. He was wonderful. We had a great relationship. We did so many great things together. I don't have to be with somebody else. I, I can take care of myself, and I, I know how to how I know what I enjoy from everything that was going on there. And I thought I was happy with that, but I still found myself spending a lot of time alone. And. I went back to, I was teaching at the university, and at the beginning of the year, they have all these back-to-school meetings, and I ran into a friend of mine there, and she says, so, are you dating yet? And I said, well, no. <laughs> and she says, well, aren't you going to? And I said, no, I, I don't think I need to do that. But she kept encouraging me and encouraging me, and uh, she wanted me to go on Match.com, and I thought that was crazy. So I made a great big long list of everything that I had to have if I was going to even go out to coffee with somebody. <laughs> I mean, if, if they didn't meet all those criteria, then I wasn't interested. And then I, I did go on to see what she was talking about, and I saw that I was right, that there wasn't anybody out there that I was interested in at all, not for coffee or anything, until I ran into Ron's uh, bio. And it was the first night that, that I, when I signed up on Match.com, and I got out my list and I started checking things off that he was saying in his bio, and every single thing on my list, and it was a long list, every single thing he had. And I thought, well, it won't hurt to go out to coffee with him. <laughs> well, that was a couple days later, we, we got together. We ended up going for dinner instead of coffee, which you, they say you're not supposed to do with online dates, but. We were together ever since after that. We never looked back. But my one challenge that I didn't anticipate was that I kind of felt like I was cheating on Jacques. And that was that was really hard for me to deal with. 
And I know typical marriage vows say something like, till death do you part. And I didn't feel unmarried. We hadn't had an end to our relationship. I still loved him. And it made it really hard to get get started with somebody else. And and while Ron and I started out as, as really great companions and enjoying each other's company, it was hard for me to deal with. He, he actually called uh, Jacques, my ex-husband, one time, and I said, oh, no, <laughs> please don't do that. You can say my husband who died, that he's not an ex-husband. And that made him think about it, things differently. And I eventually, it took me four years before we got married, before I could get to the point where I felt comfortable with getting married again. And it was okay to take that time because that's that's what I needed to work through the whole situation and be comfortable. Because whatever choices that you make, you have to be comfortable with them. You shouldn't be doing things because you think you're supposed to or you think you should. You should just go back to self-care again make the, the decisions based on on what's right for you and what's in your heart. Well, you know, the way, the way you're talking about it, it almost sounds like, you know, grief is healthy. It is, absolutely. It, people that try to not grieve, <laughs> to try to shut that out, um, have more challenges with it than, than people that, that do look at it and do things about it. And part of that comes from our society today. Um, for instance, one person told me that they got two days bereavement leave and that their boss thought he was being generous by allowing that. And when she came back and she was having a hard time doing her work and she break down into tears and the boss was getting really upset with her and saying, aren't you over that yet? And this was like in the first week after her husband died. We're, we're so geared to the jobs, what's most important, and you have to do whatever the job requires, that we take the people out of it. So it's really, really important to take care of yourself in situations like that because those things sometimes are kind of beyond your control. You probably, you might be in a job where you can't give it up right then or you don't want to give it up or it's a job you really like. But you've got to figure out how to how to work around it, and maybe you just uh, kind of build a barrier for those hours when you're at work and when you're at home. You deal with it, and you take really good care of yourself. You come home and take a bubble bath and read a good book, and write in your journal and write all the things that are frustrating you and all the wants and desires and dreams that you have for you for your future at this point. Well, journaling always is something that can be so helpful. You know, getting out all those thoughts out of your head about what do I want? When do I want it? How do I want to get it? That's it just because it's work to get it out of your head and put it on paper. But if you just let it flow and you look back, you know, usually you'll see you'll see a pattern. You'll see where you were going with it. And it can really, really If nothing else, it's a way of self-love, you know, loving on yourself, talking to yourself. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's one of the first things. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, please. Yeah, I I find that in in my uh, writing groups, I I do a writing group online now, and uh, the one that we used to do in person, and I find that I'll, I'll give them something to write about, and when they're done, we talk about it, and I find sometimes... 
They want to read exactly what they wrote because they were able to get it down in a way that they hadn't been able to even think about it before. And other times, what they wrote may be too painful or too precious to read what they wrote, but they're able to talk about what came up for them when they were writing what they wrote. And this this combination of writing and being able to talk about it with other people who... uh, get you because they they have similar experiences of loss and it, it can be any kind of loss it doesn't have to be um, your closest loved one dying it, it can be you lose your job one of the people in my group lost her house in one of the fires in california and it was her home her business was in her home her animals were there and everything was gone so there's there's lots of different kinds of losses and it's important to grieve for whatever loss it is and, and deal with that, acknowledge it. I, I think to move forward, you really have to uh, work your way through it in one way or another. Yeah, I, I, we, I know you're right. I just know that, you know, sometimes finding the right path to do that can be difficult. And certainly having a support group. Tell, tell me about the group that you have online with writing. Well, I, I have two, actually. I have one that meets every Saturday and for an hour, and we write first and then talk about it afterwards, and it's usually a small group, and it's we just have so many good things that come out of it. Sometimes we end up laughing. Sometimes we end up in tears with each other, and whatever it is is okay, and it, it feels really good. And then the other thing that I have is called the Grief and Happiness Alliance, and I had this concept for it. So I just completed doing a pilot program with a a bunch of different people who volunteered to do it to see what they thought about it. And it's where we're going to meet every week starting on November 14th. And we will write, we'll talk about the writing, we'll do happiness practices because I'm also a a certified happy for no reason uh, trainer through Marcy Shymoff because I really feel strongly about incorporating happiness in in your life. And even when you're in grief, there's no reason not to find moments of happiness and try to live in a, in a state of happiness. And my pilot group that, that uh, went through this were so excited about it. We were talking about how much to charge for that. And everybody said, you know, this, this should be a gift. To people, because if, if they're in that situation, they, they need to be nurtured. They need to be need to be able to be supported and have a gift like this. So they're they're actually following forming. Can't talk here. They're actually forming a nonprofit organization that will uh, make it so that people can come for free, and all the costs of doing this sort of thing will be covered. That's amazing. So is yeah, there- I'm I'm very excited about it. Is there a selection process for that, or is, there, is it just you, know, you have a you know is a, a group that twelve people and, and then do you have waiting lists? How are you going to work that? No, what what we will do is it will be Zoom meetings, and the the big parts of it, like giving what we're going to write about that day, will be to everybody, and it can be however many people there are, and then you write, and then. When you come, when when we finish that time, we'll go into breakout rooms, and the breakout rooms will have maybe four people in them. So you're just talking to a couple people, 
And that way the group can be as big as it wants to be. You're still going to be able to be talking to people and talking to uh, different people each week so you can get different perspectives. And then we'll also do writing practices. That's something that I can demonstrate to people and then they can uh, each do it individually. And we'll, we'll have a, a group. Uh, it's like a Facebook group, but it's not in Facebook. It's for only people that are in this group. So nobody else will be able to come in where they can share like the successes and the great things that happen to them when they're doing the happiness practices or how, how a writing exercise helped them so that they'll all be able to be in communication with each other and, and find different people to be friends with in the group and find support. So what do you think makes writing such a unique tool? Um, I, I think it's such a great tool because it's, you're getting the stuff out of your head. There's just something about um, having something written down that makes it real. That <clears throat> may sound kind of funny, but it, you, when you just keep thinking about it, you go, did, did I really think that or did that really happen? But when you write it down, you can see it. You can refer back to it if you need to. One of the things that I love to do is write uh, letters to my husband's. It depends on what I'm dealing with, on which one I write the letter to. And, and sometimes I write my mom or my dad or my sister or uh, my friends who have gone before me. And it it feels like uh, I'm sharing with them. And I'm, I'm feeling love when I'm writing whatever it is. And I feel comforted when I'm writing that way. And, and writing does that to you in a way that just thinking about something doesn't. Yeah, I, I can, I get that. I really do. And I think that it's being able to go back and reread. I know I've worked with some clients that ha- they've written themselves letters as a way to process some trauma. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll say, well, when they're done, they, well, what do I do with it? And I'm like, well, you can put it in a safe spot. And when you're ready to read it, read it. Or you can mail it to yourself and when it comes in the mail, open it just like you would any other piece of mail. Um, how, what advice do you give people on to, to do with what they've written? Uh, whatever they want to, actually. Sometimes when they've uh, written a letter, I'll say, now, right now, right when you complete that, write a letter from whoever it was you wrote to back to you. Even if you write the letter to yourself, write a letter back to you addressing what you wrote in the letter. And, and that's actually the favorite exercise that uh, people do in, in my writing groups. They, they, if I go too long without assigning one of those letters, they say, can't we write a letter now? Because they feel like they get so much out of it. And sometimes uh, they, they'll express something that they had bottled up. Like one, one situation was where somebody wrote about something that had made them so angry and they hadn't been able to deal with it before the death occurred. And they they just wrote it all out, and then they wrote back the the letter to themselves from whoever it was that they they had written to, that actually offered them some comfort and support, and that felt good. And what they ended up doing is they decided to burn the first letter, and keep the second letter, so that they they wouldn't be tempted to go back and look at that letter again. 
in the process of burning it, released it for them, released those feelings of anger that they had before. And then having the letter where they, they got the comfort that they could go back and refer to was real healthy for them. So how many letters will people write? I mean, is it, is it an ongoing process? Or is it just something you do to process the grief and then you stop? I, most people that started doing the, the letters with, with me uh, do it whenever they want to. <laughs> I haven't heard of anybody actually stopping because it's like a, a, a tool in your toolbox that when you reach a, a certain point that you feel like you need something, you can do that. You pull it out of the toolbox and, and write the letter. You don't have to do it all the time. It might be three years before you write the next letter. But you know that it's going to benefit you when, when you write it. And so you, you've always got that uh, support there for yourself. So what role does forgiveness play in the whole process? I mean, oh, for, I've, I've had that, clients that have been angry because someone died. Mm-hmm. There's, there's lots of things to be angry about. And... Uh, it could be maybe you had a conversation with the person before they died and you weren't able to finish that conversation and you you needed to forgive them or you felt they needed to forgive you and as long as you're you're holding on to that you're you're going to be living with that anger and that doesn't serve you so it's important to to find a way to release that and if you sit down and start writing about everything in the world that you can think of that you personally need to forgive, and then you start going through a process of, of I, I like to do it with writing, take each one individually and write it out. Uh, I, I forgive you, and I forgive me for feeling the way that I did about you or about what was said or what happened, so that you're you're fully forgiven all the way around and then uh, it's always a good idea to end with something like saying I love you Uh, that doesn't have to be a romantic love that can be a a more universal love that shows that you really have let it go the forgiveness has happened and I can tell you I didn't realize how many things I needed to forgive until I started doing this program not program process Uh, because I thought I was in, in real good shape. I didn't realize I, I did that. But the more I thought about it and wrote about it, the more I could see I, I do need to forgive this situation. A lot of times I might have been really angry at somebody and they didn't even know that I was angry at them or they didn't know what had happened that would have made me be angry. And so it made no sense uh, for me to be holding that anger against them. So I found by the time I went through this, this whole process, it took me a while. I worked on it on and off for maybe a year. I just, whenever I'd think of something, I would write about it at that time. And by the time I felt like, I, I think I'm, I'm whole with this now. I don't feel like there's anything left that I need to forgive. It's made me, it made me feel so good. And in addition to that, it makes me look at things differently. If I start to say something that isn't kind, I'll stop myself and say, how could I say that that would be better? And if I, I start to think that I might be in that situation, and even that's gone away. Uh, because with, with really forgiving someone else or forgiving you 
for something you did. I know I did something once that I, I thought was unforgivable, and it took me a while to work my way through that. But I finally realized that under the circumstances, I was doing the very best that I could at that moment, and that I don't feel like I ever have to do something like that again. But I can forgive myself for doing that, because at that moment, I really didn't know any better. But I don't ever have to act that way again. Well, you know, if we're doing the best we can do, sometimes that, that that's all you can do. You know, we've got about six minutes left. Yeah. And you talk about in your book, surviving and thriving. Let's talk about that. Oh, that's good. I love to talk about that. Uh, I love the word thrive. It, it means a lot to me that, that you're actively taking part in living your very best life. That's what thriving is to me. And it's, it's different for everybody because someone else's best life isn't going to be what my best life is. And it's, it's a lot about decision making. And when you, when you realize that it's not just surviving, because lots of times, especially in early grief, you feel like there's no way you can survive it. There's no way that you can get through the day, let alone live another day, because you're in so much um, discomfort. You're in so much grief and so much sorrow. And when you start finding things, especially uh, what I talked about happiness, if you can find some little thing to be happy about, whatever it is, just one thing. Like right now I'm looking at some orchids that I have growing here, and I can be so happy that they are so beautiful and that I get to look at them and they're living there and making me feel better just by looking at them, and I allow myself to feel better. A lot of times we don't allow ourselves to survive or thrive. But when, when you realize you're starting to do that, when you can recognize it and start to smile. One of the things I do, I wasn't smiling at all. I started smiling every time I went by a mirror. If I saw myself in a reflection or even a reflection in a window, if I saw my reflection and I wasn't smiling, I would smile. I got to the point where I was kind of laughing at myself when I do it because it felt good. And I thought, boy, you really look better when you smile. And I hadn't thought about that before either. But when you, you find things that you love, that you're passionate about, that you can do, like I I am passionate about serving others right now with helping them uh, find ways to deal with their grief and to find happiness. I just, I'm just so passionate about that, that I'm thriving because most of my, my moments, I'm doing something about that in one way or another, or I'm practicing good self-care. And sometimes it's, a lot of times it's both. Well, you know, it, it, you make it sound very easy. It doesn't, it, it's not complicated. It sounds like that you just have to get in touch with yourself and you have to ask yourself, what do I really enjoy doing? What brings me pleasure? And when you've been down yeah. and when you've yeah. been in that grief for for a couple of months, I think that can be hard to do. Yes, it is hard. That's why I say start with one little thing at a time. And why, <clears throat> excuse me, these happiness practices that I talk about, if you can find one that that you can do that uh, makes you feel really good 
and and you just focus on that until you get to the point where it's boy, I'm ready to try something else, and then do that, and then you've got two in your toolbox, and you can keep going forward with that sort of thing. And it can be as simple as smiling in the mirror, and that, wow. that nobody has to know about that. Nobody has to know you're doing it. You know, uh, it, it's not hard. You don't have to pay for it. it it's just a good thing to do. And, you know, and that really, done. really helps you. I've always found affirmations to be helpful for myself. Oh, um, yeah. Me and, too. you know, the the, long, the more I say them, the louder the tone of my voice is that I say them with, mm-hmm. the, the more I feel them. I mean, I, when you get really, yeah. when I lost my office to a tornado, I will come back bigger and Ugh. better and stronger. And I, I used to say that right. 10 times a day. <laughs> But guess what? Yeah. And the more I you did. say that, it, it's ingrained, you know. <laughs> it, it it absolutely is. You know, we've just got a couple of minutes left. If people are out there and, and they're thinking, wow, you know, this is something that intrigues me. This is something that I might like to do. How would they find you? Well, my website is the same as the name of my book. It's lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com. And you can go there, and there's ways to contact me. And I'm in the process of putting things on about this new Grief and Happiness Alliance, this Remember Grief and Happiness Alliance. And you'll be able to sign up for that. And it's it's free, and it's once a week, and you can come whenever you want to at that time. Um, so you can find me there. I'm also all over social media, and I'm happy to have people follow because there's lots of things. Like even on Instagram, there's a, twice a day there's something that I post that can make you smile, make you think, make you feel a little bit better. Wow, that's great because there's sometimes just having information, knowing where to go to get the information that you want can make me very happy instead of spending 15 minutes looking oh, yeah. for it. You know, so just having that direct access is great. How long do you the writing groups usually last? About an hour. Uh, the, okay. the one, the Grief and Happiness Alliance, will be a little bit longer because we're doing happiness too. That it's not a real long time period, and that's if, great. if you want you know, to do it, you can just uh, e- email me through the my website, and I'll put you on the list. All right, so real quickly, before we close, what's that website again? Lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com Excellent. Emily, thank you so much. You've given us all such a, a bright perspective on how we deal with some of the saddest things in our life. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. Thank you for the opportunity. Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center. We want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio.